You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Um, so today is a little bit different in that uh, we finished the final verses of Genesis last week. And so what I want to do, we do these occasionally, not very often, but just a recap message. So I'm actually going to do the entire book of Genesis in one sermon today, hitting the highlights. Some of you laugh because you still bring up to me that it took me an hour to preach Genesis 1-1. And so <laughs> multiply that by 1,544 you get a little nervous, but uh, I promise I will run out of steam long before that. So uh, this will be good for us to be together. Now, what I want you to do is, those of you that have been on this journey for part or all of it, is to just step back and, and, and marvel at where we've been. It is amazing that we have God's Word in our language, like I talked about earlier, prayed about earlier. Um, what a great gift that is, and for God to have spoken the message of Genesis to us over the last little bit, that we know things about God now. That's amazing. He revealed himself to us. We know things about ourselves. We know things about uh, the world around us and how things are supposed to work. So uh, I just never want to take that for granted that uh, 66 books of the Bible, we've been through two of them now in two years. And so by God's grace, we get to go through the whole thing. And uh, well, I just, I just marvel at that. And so one of the things that's really important, we all know this, is that how you start, the foundation of something is really important. Like if you get the foundation of a house wrong or you get the foundation of something else wrong, it doesn't matter how you build, it's going to end up not working out, right? Um, the way you start and how you start matters, and so that's why the book of Genesis matters. Uh, my boys were in a relay track meet on Thursday, and, uh, and it's, it's fun to watch these middle schoolers learn, maybe a lot of them for the first time, how a relay ra- race works, and it was pretty remarkable. Um, uh, just to watch them do this and see them grow in their skill and their ability. And there was one sad moment, though, because there was one team. They got in the lane. They were ready to go. And, you know, and they shot the gun. And the kid got confused. The kid thought maybe he was supposed to be in a different lane. So he just didn't go. And for about three seconds, and then finally he went. And you could just see the rest of his team go, oh. Because three seconds on a short little four-by-one relay, uh, you're out. You're done. If you don't start well then your chances of finishing well. Now, thank goodness that it's not just about how we start, but how we finish, but we, we get that, and we understand that, and everyone just kind of, oh, that's too bad. Like, they, they didn't have a shot. They knew it, and when you don't start well, where you start and how you start uh, really matters a lot, and that's why I think the book of Genesis is so important. It's the foundation. If we don't start with a right view of God or a right view of ourself or a right view of what the condition of the world is and a right view of, like, how that can be fixed, we get all of that in Genesis, and if you were to take Genesis out of your Bible, we would be terribly confused. In fact, we live in a culture that has rejected a lot of what Genesis teaches, and the chaos just continues to ensue. We actually have so many of the answers to the world's problems just by studying Genesis together. We get the foundation wrong. We pretty much don't get anything else right, and where you start and how you start matters, and people have called Genesis the seed plot of the Bible. Because all of these seeds, all these truths that we find in the book of Genesis then come to fruition and develop throughout the rest of the book. Uh, So this has been a really important study for us. And so you want to go to the next slide there? Yeah, you'll have to kind of track with us here. So that's a little bit of a one-page outline of the book of Genesis, uh, the seedbed of the whole Bible. It's really broken up into two parts. In fact, you can go to the next slide there. I want to spend just a few minutes here. This will maybe be a little easier for you to see. 
Next slide, please. There you go. So just a, a quick overview of the book. Uh, there's really two main parts to the book of Genesis. You've got Genesis 1 through 11, which is cosmic primeval history. It's the beginning of all things. And it really has a cosmic Google Earth level view. This is a big view. This is God interacting with the universe, interacting with, you, with the world as a whole. In chapter or section 2, in chapters 12 through 50, you have God working um, more with a chosen people, and particularly just one man and his family for basically the rest of the book. And so you have these two parts that are really important. God cares and has designed the entire universe and has a plan for it, interacts with it, and yet God also cares about individuals and he brings about his plan through one family, one 75-year-old man who wanders around for a while. That's sort of how this book works and how these two pieces fit together. In the first part, uh, in the, yeah, the first part, there's four sections. In the second part, there's another four sections. In the first part, Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation and blessing. We're introduced in verse 1 to a God. It, just, it doesn't try to explain where he came from. The Bible just presumes there's a God. He's the starting point. Uh, every view of how the world began, how, how everything, man, you either have to start with a who or a what. Either matter is eternal or there's a non-material being that created matter that's eternal. And the Bible lays its cards on the table right away that there is an all-powerful God who has always existed. And matter comes from Him. Matter comes from Him. He created the heavens and the earth. And so we just right out of the gate get this singular deity that has always existed. He's self-existent. He's transcendent. He's the creator. And everything else falls in the created category under His authority, under His rule. He alone is independent and and holy, and transcendent. All things come from Him, and everything else that is not Him is dependent upon Him. And so God creates a world in six days and rests on the seventh. Three forming days, where He essentially creates a canvas. Then three filling days, where He fills that canvas. And then He culminates it on day six with creating human image bearers. People made in His own image. Male and female, He created them. And they're to represent him in the world. They're to be his agents. They're to, uh, to represent him, care for the creation, spread this garden throughout the whole world. They're made to know him. They're made to represent him. They're made to exercise his authority and power. And then there's a seventh day of rest. There's this seventh day where he rests with his people, this capstone of creation, these image bearers, and they're given a special relationship with God, designed male and female, assigned by God, created by God to be this complementary set, imaging God together in the world. And it was wonderful. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us such a beautiful picture of a God who takes great care in creation and made things with such intricate design to reflect Him and to know Him and then created animated life. And not just animated life like birds and, and snakes and dogs, but He breathed His own life into dirt and made people. People with souls. People with a relationship with Him. And He was in an intimate relationship with them. If you can imagine just breathing into someone's nostrils, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't recommend it. But God did that. That's just an act of intimacy, that it's divine life that lives in human beings. They bear His image and they have responsibilities. And God gives them a commission to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And He gives them a command. It says, don't eat of this one tree. In a world full of yes, everything you can think of and desire, everything is yes, there's one no. And it's just right over here. And if you eat of that tree, then you're essentially taking your own definition of life. You're, you're, you're taking creator prerogatives. 
You're satisfying your desires in inappropriate ways and you'll break this world. And God calls it death. So if you break this one rule, you break this one command, you will fall and you'll die and you'll be separated from God. So there's this tree of life and there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapters 3 through 5, we find that humanity, under the temptation of a serpent, the supernatural being that is in rebellion against God, not equal with God, a created being of God, but yet in some way that we don't actually know all the story about, rebelled against God, rivaled God, and tempted Eve and Adam to take of the fruit and to try to become like God themselves was the temptation. Become like God yourself, which is ridiculous because they're already as like God as they could ever be. They were made in His likeness. This temptation doesn't make any sense, but yet their desires began to form for this fruit and Eve takes it. She gives it to her husband and he takes it and they rebel against God and they hide from God. Their relationship is now broken with God. They hide. They try to cover themselves up. They make excuses when God confronts them. And then God ultimately curses them, banishes them from the garden, and the tree of life essentially disappears from Scripture. This, this, this idea, this, this metaphor, this tree that represents a right relationship with God in all of these good ways just vanishes. It's gone. Humanity can no longer have access to it anymore, and the tree of life is gone, and the way of the serpent now rules in the world. Humanity is corrupted by sin. They're broken. And so we have in Genesis 3 this fall. Humanity rebels against God at the temptation of the serpent. God curses them, banishes them, but even in that banishment gives them a hopeful promise. In fact, look at Genesis 3.15 for just a moment. This would be good to have your Bibles because we'll just flip through and recap the story a little bit. But So all of this cursing, all of this cursing on the serpent, all of this cursing on the woman, all of this cursing on the man, all of this cursing of the ground. And we get this one little sliver of hope that maybe God won't put them to death eternally right here and now, but He actually is going to extend grace to them. He's going to allow them to live and actually beyond that, give them a word of hope. One of the most important verses in the whole Bible, Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then we get in there that one of her offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be at some point a conflict between the seed of the woman, a seed of the woman, and the serpent. And it will be a knockdown, drag out fight to the extent that there will be a real wounding to the heel, but there will be a fatal blow to evil, sin, death, hell, banishment, the curse. And so we get this little kind of hidden promise that just becomes this thread that works its way all the way through the Bible that God is not done with His corrupted, evil, rebellious <laughs> people. He has a plan for them. And so this fall and depravity, and we just see things get worse in chapter 4 because there's a child that's born to Eve. Imagine how much disappointment and how much you've broken. Imagine how guilty her conscience feels and how guilty his con- Adam's conscience feels. And then by God's grace... They have a child, and maybe she's thinking of the promise of going, hey, this Cain that has been born, maybe he will crush the serpent. Maybe we're going to be redeemed by God here, and you see this hopeful expectation from her. And she has another son, Abel. They both bring sacrifices to God, and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. And Cain is so overcome with anger and rage, not just against God, but against his brother. And God actually comes in person and warns him, don't indulge this. 
There is a serpent. There's a, there's a, there is a sin nature now in every human being that is prowling and wants you to do its will. Don't do it. And he kills his brother. Just imagine. We go from one bite of one piece of fruit in Genesis chapter 3 to one brother killing another brother in one chapter. There are no small sins, right? It infected humanity to the point that murder now made sense to Cain. We just see this corruption and this depravity that continues to grow in Genesis 3 through 5 until you get to chapter 6 where God renders this verdict on humanity, says that the intentions of their heart were always evil continually. What a verdict. We have a couple of characters. We have Enoch, who is taken by God for being godly. We have, um, oh, what's the other guy's name? I didn't write it down. Lamech. Is it Lamech? Help me out, Justin. Lamech, who's uh, terrible, the first polygamist, and worse, worse than Cain, and bragging about being Cain. And so you just, see, you just see this corruption that grows and grows and grows in chapters 4 and 5 and into 6 to the point that God is so grieved that he has made humanity that he decides that he's going to cleanse it. And that's section three. We get this flood and recreation. God cleanses the earth of wickedness. But he made a promise. He made a promise that there would be a, ser- a, a seed of a woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. So God can't, if he's going to be consistent with his character, absolutely wipe humanity out. And so he chooses Noah. Noah's faithful to God. And he gives Noah a weird job. Build a big boat because a huge flood's coming. It takes him a long time to do it. Nobody knows what the heck's going on. And God delivers a new family, a new Adam, this new family of eight, and gives them a new covenant. And he authorizes humanity to work together to restrain evil in this new creation and this covenant to to restrain his judgment that he'd never flood the earth again. So we get flood and almost a recreation. God had reached his limit, cleansed the earth in in a horrible, horrible judgment worldwide judgment, and starts with a new Adam. And there's hope. There's hope that this righteous Noah, maybe the world could be different. Like if we could just get rid of all the bad people and it would just be the good people. If it would just be me, I think I could fix the world, right? I I know what's wrong with the world. I have the answers to people's problems. And you're like, no one would be better qualified than Noah. He walks with God. He's 500 years old. He's got tremendous wisdom. He's been obedient to God. And then you find that his family's corrupted by the same sin. That maybe you can take the man out of a world of sin, but there's still a world of sin in each man, right? It wasn't Noah's environment that ultimately was the problem. It was that Noah and his family still had the same sin nature in them. And so rebellion continues. Rebellion continues to the point that humanity then decides to go ahead and build a tower up to God. We're going to try to insulate ourselves against God. We're going to try to rise in glory. We're going to try to reach the heavens. And maybe if he even tried the flood thing, we would have towers that we could live in. Right? And so they rebel against God. The people sin, unite in rebellion against God and building the Tower of Babel, and God comes down to see what man is doing. You just get this irony in chapter 10, chapter 11, actually, of him coming down to see their great work. Let me go down and just see what these microscopic little nothings have done to rival me. And he comes down and just in a split second confuses their languages and scatters them all over the nation, all over the world in these different nations. And that's a judgment. It's a judgment of God that he's spreading them out so that maybe their sin could be somewhat quarantined. Like, (laughs) at least it's somewhat limited by language and geography, right? Let's spread it out so that their sin at least would have some restraints to it. And chapter 11 really ends with this sense of God just continues to have this rebellious people. 
that he continues to give grace to and continues to have to judge. And you kind of wonder at what point are all of the people going to be gathered back together. And that's where we get the switch in, into section 2 in Genesis chapter 12. And I would encourage you to actually turn to Genesis chapter 12, um, verses 1 through 3, 1 through 4. And here's what God says. God, just picks a man, just, and you, you, I'm going with you. And he picks this 75-year-old man who by, there seems to be no indication that he worships God prior to this. God just by his sovereign grace goes, I still have a promise to keep to humanity. And now they're all scattered across the nations, so it's now harder, right, for this promise to come true. I'm going to use that guy. And by his own sovereign grace, he chooses Abram. And listen to what he says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That scattering that I did at Babel, I'm going to reverse that. And I'm going to do it through someone born to your family. I'm going to do it through you guys. Abraham didn't earn this, didn't deserve it, had no idea. Maybe didn't even know there was a promise. And he believed God. He believed God. He believed God for these promises. And he just ups and moves. And for several chapters here, we just have him and his family moving. And they really pretty much lead a pretty nomadic life. He has some good moments, like when he rescues his brother, or not his brother, his nephew Lot from the kings of Sodom. And he worships with, uh, um, with Melchizedek. He recognizes the godliness of Melchizedek, this mysterious figure. There's so many important things that we learned there. But then he also like, tries to give his wife away a couple times. And that just never works out. <laughs> that never goes well. That's never good on a marriage. And they're waiting. They're waiting for this child. They're too old to have children. And yet God has promised that through you, you're going to have children, not just one child, but you're going to have a whole nation come from you. And we have in chapter 12 through 25, just waiting, following around with Abraham, seeing his ups and downs. This 315 promise is going to come through Abraham. That's all we know. To regather the scattered people and to bless them. These rebels are going to be blessed by God. There's a promise of God's presence being with Abraham. There's a promise for land. There's a promise for many descendants. There's a, plan, a promise for blessing. We see this promise reaffirmed in Genesis 15 with the cutting of the animals and walking through. And what's amazing is that Abram doesn't have to walk through. Typically, when you're making a covenant, both parties walk through, but only God walks through to say, I'm going to do this no matter how bad you screw up, Abraham. And Abraham will test that. Abraham will test that. But God himself goes, as surely as you can trust in me, may I be torn apart if this covenant is not kept. And little do we know that there's actually a picture that God himself will be torn apart at the cross in order to fulfill the covenant. So we have this gospel picture. Genesis 17, we have a sign of circumcision given to reaffirm the covenant. In Genesis 22, when Isaac is finally born miraculously to Abraham and Sarah at the age of 100 and Sarah's 90, then uh, God tests him, immediately just seems to turn around and test him and goes, sacrifice your son on an altar to me. Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham by faith, almost goes through with it until God delivers him, and then God reaffirms this covenant to him. So, so many ups and downs with Abraham in chapters 12 through 25, yet the final verdict, as 
the rest of, as much of the New Testament, all of the Old Testament, is that Abraham is considered a man of faith. He's trusting in God. He's walking with God. And we all get to enter in by the same faith that Abraham has. We're going to come to um, Genesis 15. We're going to look at that verse in just a few minutes. Um, but how that's a central picture of what the Old Testament wants to teach us about Abraham. Abraham's son brought to him Isaac. 25 years after the promise, Isaac is finally born. His name means laughter because this is ridiculous how God is working. That he would give children to these old people. He lives life that seems to almost exactly repeat his father. He tries to give his wife away. He builds some wells. Like it's, just like, it's almost like Abraham 2.0. But, then, but, I, but Isaac... And his relationship with Rebekah, his wife Rebekah, that he loves so dearly, Esau and Jacob are born. And we know that the promise is going to go through one of these two boys. And we find out that it's Jacob, not Esau, that will receive the promise. And so in chapters 25 through 50, we have Jacob. Jacob is chosen, not Esau. Yet the family twists and turns. Jacob tricks his father, swindles Esau, ends up exiled under the rule of Laban. He, while he's there, accumulates four wives, not a great idea, has 12 sons with those wives, and yet God is sovereign in all this. Jacob comes back to the promised land, a little beat up by Laban, but prosperous with all of this blessing from God, comes back into the promised land, has several huge encounters with God, like a ladder from heaven. He wrestles with God at the river Jabbok. He has a vision about Egypt before going down there. And he is able to some extent see the future and give a prophecy to his sons in Genesis chapter 49. Jacob lives a remarkable life. God changes his name to Israel, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. God himself will identify himself with this family through Israel. Israel means wrestles with God. And you'll just notice that's their relationship with God all the time, is that they strive and wrestle with God, but God has chosen them to be the deliverer through him, through their family. In Genesis 37 through 50, we then have Joseph, this forced character, as we look at this chosen people history. Cosmic primeval history, now we have chosen people history. And if primeval cosmic history is like Google Earth, then this chapters 12 through 15 is like street view, like looking at someone's house in kind of a creepy way, right? Like, as you can do that now. <laughs> I can look at uh, Google Street View on my house and know, like, okay, we don't have that car anymore. And, oh yeah, we moved that hose. It's creepy what uh what the internet knows but that's what's happening in the second part and we have joseph joseph is the favorite of israel or jacob's sons he's sold by his brothers into slavery yet he maintains his integrity he's marked by god's presence rises to second command in egypt by the interpretation of dreams and brilliant navigation of the economy he blesses and rescues egypt and egypt actually becomes an engine of saving the world how ironic that egypt would become the the savior through Joseph's leadership, and he ends up saving his own family from, from destruction. He provides a type, a picture of the rescuer king, a rescuer king who will come, and his promise will come through Judah's line. But ultimately, the people of Israel are left in Egypt to wait on God and to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to them and through, through them for the world. So remember, last week we ended Genesis sort of like a little sad, like, all these promises that were guaranteed, they don't come to resolution. And you get to the end of the book and you're kind of like, well, it's hopeful, but it's also unsatisfying. Like, there, there's got to be a sequel. Well, it turns out there's a lot of sequels left. God still has a long story to tell. 
And what's fascinating, we've learned this, and you can go to the next slide here, is that God has told this story on the canvas of human Toledotes. Toledotes, the Hebrew word for these are the generations of. These serve as kind of the chapters of the book, is that God is writing his story on the procreation of the human race. Of all the ways that God could write his story, he's writing it in reference to humanity. And there's these seams, these chapter breaks that connect the story together by Toledot. This is the son of this person. This is the son of this person. To show that this is one coherent story that God is telling. And human are, humans are the paper that he's writing his story on. And so these are the sections here. The Toledot of the heavens and the earth. The Toledot of Adam. And then Noah. Noah's sons. Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And what a privilege that God would write his story on human beings, would tell his story and describe his faithfulness over generations. He could do it through anything. He could, he, could, he could arrange the planets in such a way that they spell out his name, but he doesn't do that. He uses his image bearers, and he uses even the sinful actions of his people to bring about his plan. And so we have these 10 chapters, this 10 human Toledotes, a divinely written story about one lost but interconnected humanity that he is going to redeem. We have three structural covenants, promises that God makes. The Adamic covenant, made in the garden in Genesis 2, broken by man in the garden, plunging humanity into corruption, and every descendant of Adam and Eve is corrupted. This is the next slide there, Ben. You just follow along. Yeah. Uh, then in chapter 9, we have the Noahic covenant, where God unconditionally gives a promise to the whole world that he would restrain his, restrain his judgment by flood a precious promise to them that they don't need to fear that. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant like we read in Genesis chapter 12, reaffirmed in 15, 17, 22, and again and again and again to his descendants that through them they would become a great nation, they would be marked by God's presence, and they would be the blessing to the whole world. So the Abrahamic covenant. So we have these three covenants that set the superstructure. It's like the, the beams on a house, right? They're holding up the whole structure. And then we have these themes of redemption and forgiveness that sit on these beams of covenant as God tells his stories. And so these load-bearing covenants hold up the story of God from the Adamic covenant and its breaking from, to the Noahic covenant and the fact that it's unconditionally still in place in the Abrahamic covenant of a, of, a, um, of a blessing that will come that will ultimately culminate in a new covenant through Jesus Christ and his own blood. Seven essential characters Adam, he's the first man. He's our representative. What happens to Adam happens to all of us. It's kind of an all or nothing deal, which you might not think that's fair. How is it that one sin plunges us all into corruption? That's really not fair. Well, the good news is that flips because you can switch representatives. It's also the way that we all fell into sin is also the exact same principle that will bring us all into salvation and that you can trust in the righteousness of one man, Jesus Christ. So while we all fell in Adam, Romans 4, 5, 6 talks about this, that we all fell in sin in Adam, Romans 3, basically read Romans. <laughs> we all fell in Adam, but the good news is that same principle can be re, that we can all be remade in Christ by one righteous, a new Adam. So we have Adam, we have Eve, the first woman who fell into sin but is the recipient of a promise. Promise is going to come through a woman like Eve. Not going to come through men, it's going to come through a woman a virgin, actually, a virgin Mary. She is going to be the one who ultimately gets to uh, have the most prominent role in this promise given to Eve. She's the one who is tempted, but yet she's also the one that gets a promise. What a gracious thing of God, right? 
But the one who sinned first also gets this promise, right? What a gracious thing of God. That he would go, no, it's going to be through a woman that the sin, the snake crusher will come. Noah, the one righteous man whom God uses to preserve humanity through judgment. When you get to heaven, you really owe Noah a big fist bump. You really owe him, right? Because if he wasn't faithful to God, none of us would be here, right? All of humanity. And he serves as a type of Christ to some extent. One righteous man saves humanity. He's not perfect, but he pictures the one who is perfect. Abraham, the man who receives the promise to be the family that God will bring the Genesis 3.14 promise, 3.15 promise into the world. Jacob, that's character, essential character number five, the man who fathers the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph, the man who God uses to save his people and pictures important qualities about the ultimate savior of God's people. And then we have Judah, number seven, the horribly flawed man. Remember the horrible stuff that he did? Horrible stuff. Even incest with his daughter-in-law. Horrible. But God changes his heart, and he ultimately will be the divine savior whom the royal king will come from. What, a, what an amazing story. That it, and then we, that's where we're left. We're left with this picture of going, look for a king from Judah that will have the qualities of a Joseph. We're just left waiting for that. Read through your Bible and you'll realize that David, to some extent, pictures that, he, but he's not complete because he falls in sin. We're looking for someone that's even a better David. Even a better king, and that will come through Christ. Four key purposes of the book is to introduce God and his relationship with creation. That happens in the first verse, and we see it play out. What is God like? How does he relate to his creation? We also get the purpose of defining humanity's origin and purpose and nature. What are humanity? What is humanity for? Why do they exist? How do they exist? How do they relate to each other? Why did it go wrong? How did it go wrong? Let's watch people get it wrong. (laughs) And let's watch a good God get it right at the same time. So we get a whole understanding now of of humanity. Like without Genesis, we don't know with the clarity that we would that people are made in God's image and we shouldn't kill them, (laughs) murder them without cause, right? That they're made male and female on purpose, for a purpose. What's their nature? Why are they bad why am i why do i have these desires why do i have these sins we get all of those answers in genesis it also tells the nation of israel's purpose and origin why do they exist how did they come into existence it gives israel's backstory and why they're significant and what their ultimate intention god's ultimate intention for them is and it ultimately creates a hopeful faith in the sovereign god of promise that there is a god who made all things whom we've rebelled against we've committed treason against we have an eternal death sentence on us And yet that God continues to pursue us. He continues to come after rebels. And he has a plan. And he's working out that plan. And he's working that plan through humanity. Not apart from it, but through them. What what an amazing thing. So we go from creation to a coffin. Joseph's coffin at the end of the book. We go from good. God's saying everything is good, good, good in chapter 1. To a grave in chapter fifty. We go from perfection to now living in imperfection, but with a promise. And we go from banishment from the tree of life to a promise that God will visit us. Remember, that's the, like the last couple verses of Genesis are Joseph saying, God will visit you. God will visit you. He's coming in a way that he's never come before. He will come. He will deliver you. And he's speaking of the Exodus. 
But I think there's also a larger fulfillment of that, that God will come actually in the flesh and personally redeem his people. So let me close with the gospel in Genesis. The gospel in Genesis. Four things that we learn about God, humanity, Christ, and how do we respond? How do we get in on this? We have all of these things in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at it in every sermon. (laughs) I've tried to point out how this is connected to the gospel. Let's do it one more time on this book. First of all, we realize that God is the main character. Consider his names. He's called Yahweh, which means supremely powerful one, 209 times. His personal name, Yahweh, his personal covenant name, happens 139 times that he's a relational God that gives his personal name to a people, that they might know him by name. Don't just call me Mr. President. Call me Josh. I'm not a president, pastor, whatever. I don't know where I was going with that. But El Shaddai. El Shaddai, which means all-sufficient one. El Olam, the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the universe, the God, the ancient of days, Genesis 21, 33. He's called Adonai, which means Lord or Master, Genesis 15, 18, 30, 31, 32, 19, and 20. El Roy, the God who sees me, Hagar, when she's kicked out of the family in Genesis 16, and God rescues her, calls her El, he calls, she calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord is my shepherd. Genesis 48 and 49. Yahweh Yira, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. Maybe you've heard it that way before, Genesis 22. And we get this picture of what God is like through his names that come up in the book. We realize that God is creator, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, so he owns everything. If you make it, you own it. If you make it, you own it. It's his. The whole world is his. There isn't anything in that exists that does not belong to God and he has ownership and authority over. Author, right? We say authority. The one who authored the thing is in charge of it, right? Authority. But he's also a judge. Chapter 18, verse 25. Far be it that you should do such a thing to put the righteous to death. This is Abraham speaking to God about his destruction of Sodom for sin. God comes and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham argues with him for a little bit and says, hey, you wouldn't do it for 50, right? 45 all the way down to 10. And it's all a question of his justice. There's no doubt that God has the right as a judge to execute judgment. It's just, God, where does your mercy come into this? And they have this discussion. And here's what he concludes. Far be it from you that you should do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the unrighteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God's judgments are always good and right. So when he says it is good and when he says it is not good, what he calls sin is sin. What he calls evil is evil. And so we realize in Genesis that he is a judge. He renders judgments and they are severe at times. They are severe at times. And yet, we see that God is a savior. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God worked a plan even through evil to save humanity. God's in the business of not just judging, but saving even through judgment. The whole Noah story is a horrible picture of judgment, but yet right in the middle of it is salvation. Salvation through judgment. You'll see that again and again. When God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, it's a salvation. The promise is given through judgment. Salvation through judgment. God delivers not Lot out of Sodom. Salvation through judgment again and again. And then what do you have on the cross of Jesus Christ? The judgment of God falling on Christ, salvation through judgment. It's a theme of the whole Bible. 
that somehow the Creator, who has been offended, will both judge and save in the same act. And that's amazing. What do we then learn about humanity, if that's what we learn about God? First, humanity is glorious. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So humanity is made glorious, gloriously in God's image, with tremendous value and intention. But humanity is corrupted. Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Humanity is entirely corrupted. There isn't a part of our existence that is not tainted by sin. Our intellect, our relationships, our emotions, our actions, our words, everything is tinged with wickedness. And yet, humanity is so loved by God, beloved by God. Genesis 39, 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So we find that about humanity, that humanity is gloriously made in God's image, but horribly corrupted, condemned before God, and yet loved by God. God continues to extend his loving grace throughout the book. They're clothed in Genesis chapter 3 with skins, right? They should get a death sentence, but God kills some animals to cover them. He preserves Noah. He extends love through judgment there. A promise to Abraham that he didn't deserve. He sustained Jacob. Jacob should have been written off. He should have been kicked off the team like a dozen different times. And God continues to show love to him. And this loving grace is protected in Joseph. We see him walking in the love of God. And that walking in God's presence and God's affection and God's love meant that he could say no to Potiphar's wife. And he could have diligence in the prison. And then when he rose to power, it didn't go to his head because he had a relationship with God. The word blessed happens 72 times in the book of Genesis, more than any other book of the Bible. The word blessed in Genesis. God has an intention to lovingly bless humanity, even though they've turned from him. Which brings us to Christ. Jesus Christ is not mentioned one time in the entire book because he doesn't enter the world till later, but he is promised, he is pictured, and he is described in this book. The Savior of the world is promised, pictured, and described in this book. Promised, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Like we read in the Genesis 12, promised to Abraham, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you of great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will... And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a promise connected to Christ. Not only will he deal with the sin and evil problem by crushing the head of the serpent, but he'll bring the favor of God again. It's not just that you're going to be declared not guilty and then go on to lead your life. It's now now that you're going to be credited with righteousness in Christ. There's going to be a double transaction. There's going to be, it's going to be better than just forgiveness. It's going to be reconciliation. We see Christ pictured. I could list many other passages. I'm just giving you a sampling. He's pictured. Uh, chapter 28, verse 12. Jacob dreams, and behold, there was a ladder set up to the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus then describes this exact passage in John chapter 1 when he says, I'm the one that is the ladder to heaven. The angels 
ascend and descend on me. So this access, this access between the, the physical world and the spiritual world, I'm the access point. So that's many other pictures. In Noah's Ark, we have a picture of Christ, that those who are outside the ark are condemned, they die. Those in the ark are safe. And the early church talked about this quite a bit, that Jesus was like the ark. To be in the ark is to be safe. To be outside the ark is to be condemned. And so we are in Christ by faith. They were in the ark by faith, saved from judgment. Those who are not in Christ by faith are subject to judgment. 1 Peter 3 talks about this. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, uses this picture of salvation by being in the ark. He says this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You enter into Christ by faith, and he absorbs the judgment just like the ark absorbed the judgment. And you're saved, and you're brought into a new world of a new covenant. We get that picture. We get the picture of Christ. In the tearing of animals in Genesis chapter 15, in Abraham being willing to give up his one and only son in Genesis chapter 22, God himself will do that same thing. And Jacob's ladder chapter 28 talks about that same thing. And then in Joseph, Joseph, the one who is betrayed by his brothers becomes their rescuer and their provider. So we have Jesus pictured all over the place in the Old Testament. Promised in these covenants, pictured through all of these different acts in the book, and then described. Look at Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. In fact, I'd love for you to turn there as we begin to land the plane here. Genesis 49, verse 10. Just read this prophecy one more time. This is sort of how the book then begins to to land. Chapter 49, verse 10. Israel, Jacob, is giving a prophecy over his son Judah. And uh, let's start in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. And the scepter, the rule, the king's rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute, remember we talked about that, the word Shiloh, until God's deliverer comes to him. The one who brings peace is what it means there. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not people singular, meaning the people of Israel, but peoples. Wait a minute. You mean all nations? All nations, I think, is being hinted here. Binding his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. Remember, this king is going to be marked by a donkey, not a war horse. Jesus comes in on a donkey. He washes his garments in wine. Looks like blood. And his vesture is the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than white and his teeth are whiter than milk, meaning just speaking of his tremendous moral purity. And so we have him described as a king that will come and will be perfect. So Christ is promised, pictured, and described in the book of Genesis. All those threads find their culmination in Jesus. And then we're called to respond. God, what he's like, man, what he's like, Christ, what he has done, and then ultimately, what's the response in Genesis to this creator God? What's the response to his grace? What's the response that humanity should should bring to this God. First of all, this God, humanity is to believe God. Humanity is to obey God. Humanity is to worship God. That's the theme of the book. 
In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham looks up at the stars and it says he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Maybe, one, maybe the most important verse in Genesis. That's a, hard, that's a hard thing to say. Certainly one of the top five most important verses in the whole Bible. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. A faith that is not based on works, but based on a promise. God credited him righteousness that he did not earn because he trusted in a promise. Romans 4 says this, Romans 4, 22 and 25, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered over to our trespasses and raised for our justification. The same way that Abraham was saved and received righteousness is the same way that we are saved and receive righteousness. As he was looking at stars and believing in a promise, we are looking at the cross and believing in a person. But it's the same thing. It's righteousness by faith. Faith in his word, faith in his ways. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we get righteousness. And he's to be obeyed. Uh, chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. Noah did all that God commanded him. That's good news. <laughs> if he had not... The Bible's way shorter, and none of us are here to read it. But he obeyed God. Chapter 3, 13, the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Disobedience got us into the problem. God is saving us so that we can then be enabled to obey. Not saved by our obedience, but saved to obedience and the good life. And we're called to worship. Chapter 22, 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram. Because he was going to sacrifice his son as an act of worship to God and obedience to him and trust in him. And God provides a substitute. Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket in his thorns, by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son because God saved them. God called them. Noah builds an altar. Abraham builds an altar. Isaac builds an altar. Jacob builds an altar. So this theme of worship that God has our hearts is critical. So there, we have the gospel. There is a God in heaven who is the creator, the judge, and a savior. Humanity, we are glorious but terribly corrupted, facing a judgment. But we are so loved. Christ has been promised and pictured and described as the savior that Genesis is pointing us to. And the right response is to believe, obey, and worship him. So, Genesis raises so many questions that we wish would be answered. But the message is undeniable. God, humanity, Christ, the promised one, and a response. And the question then is, do we believe it? Do we embrace this story by faith? Do you know God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who is creator, judge, and savior of us all. Have you reckoned with your own identity? That you are gloriously made in his image to know God, but corrupted and facing a judgment. And do you understand that Christ is the answer? He is the promise, the picture, and the description of your salvation. And have you responded in faith, obedience, and worship to him? One last text I want to point you to. Remember the tree of life that was lost in Genesis chapter 1? It's not mentioned really ever again. It's just totally lost. 66 books of the Bible. You get to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. All the corruption, all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. All the chaos that happens in the middle. And this is how the book of ends. 
This is the future we're aiming at. Look at this, Revelation 22, 1 through 4. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Huh, that's been gone. It has just vanished. God has banished us from the tree. We cannot have this access to him. But because of what Christ has done, the tree of life is now available and guaranteed. And look at this. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations from all of those cuts of sin, from all of the horrible things that have happened in human history. There is a healing through Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. All that destruction that began with one piece of fruit, it's all going to be healed, all of it for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. There's not even going to be another tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we could screw things up again. Like, it's only good. Nothing accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and there will be no need of light, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Oh man, it's, it's going to work out. It starts in a garden. It's all lost in a garden. It's all regained in a city. And it's going to be even better than when it started. It was really important that it started really well, and then it got really bad. It's going to finish even better. We dropped the baton in lane one. Humanity did, and yet we'll cross the finish line. Victors with Christ. It's all going to be restored and made new oh that's good news let's pray god thank you for this time thank you for this opportunity to just sort of uh, overview the whole book i know this is a lot Uh, it has been a lot it's a big book and you are doing so many things in this book there's so many truths we need to know and take hold of and there's so many of them we've forgotten already and yet god we trust that this book has shaped us in all the right ways that it has grounded us in a sure hope, a realism about the world, that it's, it's going to be corrupt, obviously. It's going to be corrupt, and so we put no hope in this world. And yet, God, you've left us in this world to be agents of righteousness, to be a blessing to the nations. Thank you for sending your Son to be the fulfillment of all these promises. And God, while we get frustrated how slow you work, hopefully Genesis has helped us to have a patient, enduring faith that doesn't give up quickly, keeps our eyes on you. God, help us to trust you, help us to obey you even when it seems crazy, and help our hearts to worship you knowing that that's our destination. Thank you, God, that you will bring the tree of life back into play, and it will be bigger and better and greater and grander than ever. Thank you that all of the wounds and scars of sin will be healed by Christ, by this new heavens and this new earth. Help us to put our hope and our trust there and live faithfully in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.